Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. Since our last episode, the Revs had a bit of a busy week. Started with the news of some failed transfers, was highlighted with a heavy loss in Chicago and the firing of Brad Friedel, and ended last night with a 3-1 to win at home against San Jose. I'm Greg Johnstone, and we have a full week of news to discuss. So we brought in our full cast. Uh, first, hailing from the meh state of Connecticut, Jake Katniss of the Bent Musket is here. Jake, how's it going? Wait a minute, wait a minute. That is home of the best soccer team in New England, Hartford Athletic. How dare you, sir? That is true. That is have true. they won a game yet? Uh, no, we, we did we did tie the home opener at the rent last week against Charlotte. I was there. I'll be there on Tuesday for the Open Cup game as well at University of Hartford, not uh, Rensselaer. But uh, yeah, they tied. They've got uh, they have one uh, point. I think it's oh nine and one on the year. If my math is correct. And it was yeah. a big week for Connecticut because the Hurricanes, uh, with their nice tribute to the Hartford Whalers, losing six to nothing today. Six to two, I should say. Six to two. Let up two way, to, way to blow the shutout and let up two goals in the third, you jerks. Uh, also joining us today from the Telegram Gazette, Carl Sutherland is there uh, is here with us. Uh, Carl, how's it going? I thought I told you guys I did not want to be on a podcast with Jake again. But uh, <laughs> since he's here, I guess we'll let it fly this time. <laughs> You know, we'll, we'll take you guys when we can get you on the podcast. You know, we're beggars can't be choosers, right? Um, and as always, unfortunately, Sean Donahue is here. Sean, how's it going? I'm just getting pumped up for, what is it, three weeks from today now for the uh, Champions League final. So that's all my focus is on. <laughs> that's We have a very busy week uh, uh, podcast to discuss. So that's the only Spurs talk we can afford today, Sean. I'm very, very sorry. But uh, that, that's it. I'm glad you got your, your two cents in. Um, let's hop right into last night's game. We'll cover the San Jose game first, and we'll talk about our key takeaways. Um, Sean, why don't we start with you? What was your key takeaway from last night? So I had one really quick takeaway, and then my real takeaway. My first takeaway is that uh, Andrew Farrell is still not a center back. Um, for all the good that came out of last night, I thought he had another poor performance at center back, where there were several times where Andy Baba had to bail him out. And even on that goal that they score, I thought it was a bit slow to react. So um, lots of positive takeaway, but that's my negative. My positive um, is that a lot of these guys that people had written off under Friedel are still good players. They just weren't performing under Friedel because Friedel apparently couldn't motivate the squad. I thought Pena had one of his best games of the season. I thought Fagundes, um, when he had the ball played well, I don't think he saw enough of the ball in this game in that position. Um, and I thought Buchanan was fantastic off the bench. I mean, you know, we were quick to, to call him raw at the beginning of the season, I think rightfully so. Um, but he's just gotten better and better as the season's worn on. And, uh, you know, for a guy that was a first round draft pick, um, you know, and this day and age, a you know, mid first round draft pick doesn't mean very much. And I think your expectations are pretty low. He's far exceeded those expectations. Um, so just, you know, a lot of guys in this team that have talent and performed a lot better uh, last night than we saw all season um, under Friedel. So I, th- I think the, the coaching change paid some immediate dividends and that um, some of these guys that have been underperforming uh, clearly show that they still have what it takes to, to actually play well in this league. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, too, um, kind of getting the uh, old lineup back in and the old players, the core that we thought was going to be a part of this team. I, I think you sent out a tweet yesterday that this was only the second game where Diego, Pania, and Carlos Hill have all started in the same lineup together. I think that was your tweet, Sean. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it seems like, uh, you know, the new coach is bringing in kind of a uh, fresh start for kind of the veterans that have kind of fallen on the depth chart a little bit. So um, pay dividends in game one. It'll be interesting to see where they go uh, going forward. Carl, uh, what was your key takeaway from last night's game? 
Well, and I don't want this to sound like I'm defending Mike Burns too much, but I think you saw that uh, this isn't one of the third, one of the three worst rosters in MLS uh, last night. I mean, it's it's maybe one of the ten worst, but uh, it's it's a okay team uh, when they're playing together and motivated and uh, in a formation and with tactics that make sense. And uh, you know, really uh, being there last night, uh, it felt like. You could you could really feel the weight lifted off of the the players and and the team and uh, just uh, and I know that's common when you you have a little bump when the first game after you fire a coach and and everybody thinks it's a new opportunity and uh, you know they want to impress the new guy and all, all that type of stuff but uh, you you could really feel a difference around the locker room and with the players and uh, one thing I, I want to say is that. I certainly understand that um, there's been a lot of, you know, media coverage, national media coverage on this. And, of course, the supporters uh, groups, the Rebellion and, and all those guys are, I know, are, are pushing to kind of take advantage of this moment to say um, not only, uh, you know, should Brad Friedel have gone, but also clean house with, with Mike Burns and that uh, they, they want to put pressure on the crafts to... I guess sell, which isn't going to happen, or or be somehow push them to get more in, involved and invest more in the club. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that is uh, unfairly takes away the attention from the fact that uh, the the Brad Friedel tenure was uh, truly one of the um, most. You know, I, I think we'll look back in history as it being one of the worst tenures in MLS history of, of a coach that took granted, you know, not a playoff team, but a, a borderline playoff team and made it while, while uh, being allowed to bring in his own players and change the style and, and relatively empowered uh, made it arguably the worst team in the league along with Colorado and, and an expansion team. And, and uh, so I think, you know, I understand people wanting to also put pressure on Mike Burns at this time, but let's, let's not let that take attention away from uh, the Brad Friedel era itself, which uh, in pretty much every aspect of coaching uh, tactics, uh, psychology of the players, uh, the locker room, uh, the way it just everything, you know, it, uh, let's not. Forget about that, I, I guess, and saying let's not let him off the hook too much. And I understand it's sad when a guy loses his job, but uh, it, it was uh, it was overdue. And, and you kind of had a kind of half defense of Burns there. I think by law I'm required, because I have a Twitter account, I'm required to ask you, do you work for the Crafts? How dare you defend Mike Burns? <laughs> um should before we get to Jake's takeaway, should we hop into the Bradfordil firing now? I feel like this is going to be kind of a main point of all of our takeaways. What, regardless of whatever you think of Mike Burns, we do we all agree that it was time for Bradfordil to go? Was there any justification for retaining him as head coach? No, <laughs> no. Well, you know, and I, I even uh, I, I tweeted this out, of course, uh, but it, and most any other franchise uh would have realized and i think it was clear to everybody that by the end of last season uh and maybe part of it was being there and seeing the all the players on the when they did the exit interviews you know directly after the final game that that was not you know it was over it was over at the end of last season and uh you know, 
they should have moved on over the offseason. And uh, they gave him plenty of time, even though it sounds like, you know, what season and a half, maybe that's not a, a huge amount of time. But for how bad the team was, that was that was plenty of time. He, he, it, they should have made that move earlier. I have never well, seen a player look as depressed and defeated as Juan Agudelo looked in that post-game interview uh, after the Chicago Fire game. I mean, they're only a third of the way through the season at that point, maybe slightly more. Um, but to the look on Juan Agudelo's face and the way he was struggling to make it through that interview, I, you know, I think I texted Greg right after that and I said, "I think this is, you know, the Bradfield's got to be done after this. This is just, you know, incredible to see a player look like this after a game." And you know, Brad Feldman and Paul Mariner cut that interview short because it was it was so bad. Um, the way one looked at that point. Um, so I, I, you know, just seeing that and seeing how that, that game ended in one, I go reaction. Um, I don't think they had any option. Yeah. And I, I also told you, Sean, I, 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 I wanted to tweet that out. I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to let our listeners know, cause we didn't have a, a, a podcast on Wednesday that that was your prediction that Brad Friedel was getting fired the next day. Um, we didn't tweet that out. Instead, you tweeted out uh, something like literally two minutes before that Brad Friel probably wasn't doing his interview on 98.5 because he was traveling, not because he was fired. Oops. That was amazing timing. That tweet was literally two minutes old. It was literally right before all the Brad Friel fired tweets came in. But um, no, I, I think going back to last week, um, you know, we kind of thought that Brad Friel was going to hold off until June 4th. But two consecutive five goal losses. You can't have a negative 10 goal differential in the span of five days. It just seemed like, and even Brad Friel too, we talk about Juan Agudelo being, you know, a little down in the dumps. I mean, Brad Friel's last halftime interview, he seemed at a total loss of words. He seemed like he had no idea what was going on. Um, I, I think making the move when they did, it was kind of putting everyone out of their misery. So yeah, I, I, I think if you had told me last week, if Brad Friel would be gone, uh, by Thursday, I wouldn't have believed it, but that Chicago game was an absolute disaster. Who, I, I, Sean, I, I'll go to you first on this one too. Um, you mentioned that there was absolutely no nothing positive in the press release the Revs um, released. No positive quotes. Um, no, thank you for your service, Brad. Brad gave it his best. Well, yada yada yada. Do you read something into that that maybe there was tension between Brad Friel and the front office? Yeah, I mean, I've been covering the revolution for now three coach firings. I was here when Fernando Clavijo was fired. I was here when Steve Nichol was fired. Actually, I mean, four, I should say. I was here when Jay Heaps was fired, and I was here when uh, Brad Friedel was fired covering this team. Um, and it was a very different very different the way they came off with Brad Friel's firing. Obviously, Steve Nichol, the best head coach in the history of the of the revolution. Um, you know, there was lots of praise for him. They even had a co- quote from Jonathan Kraft from that. Um, you know, when Jay Hughes was fired, he had taken the team to, you know, MLS Cup final. They lost that, but he was a club legend. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are quotes from, I think Jay Heaps might have even been quoted in that one, maybe not, but it was quotes from Bolello and, and, and Mike Burns. Um, and then, you know, just in, in general, you see guys like Anthony Hudson. We talked about the disaster that, that he was in, in Colorado. He got some, you know, favorable quotes from from Colorado we saw Alan Coke who got some maybe passive aggressive quotes but at least he got some quotes from the the front office when he was fired from Cincinnati and Brad Friedel it was just completely devoid of, of quotes from Mike Burns or from uh Brian Bolello and we talked about when Brad Friedel was hired the fact that he was Mike Burns's roommate for the U.S. national team um so for them to come out there and put out that release and and not even have a quote about Brad Friedel they honestly they, they listed Brad Friedel's record in the release and there was nothing else about Brad Friedel the rest of it was talking about Mike Lapper's resume and um you know what he he brings as interim head coach 
uh, you know, that speaks to the to the fact that or to the, you know, my assumption that they're they probably weren't on the best of terms at the end there. And we talked about it before how, you know, Brad Friel had made some comments like, oh, I can't believe the you know, not to that extent, but said something along those lines like if it was up to me, I probably wouldn't have talked about that designated player coming in. Um, and I believe it was Brian Blow that first announced that. So um, I, I think there was probably some tension towards the end there. And you'd have to imagine, you know, when you're performing as poorly as Brad Friedel was as coach, that some tension would exist. But it was kind of shocking to me that, you know, Mike Burns' U.S. men's national team roommate didn't even get a, you know, token quote from Mike Burns, like, thanks for your service. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that speaks to him being on the, the best of terms with the front office at the end there and probably wasn't aided by, you know, what we're going to perhaps talk about later, what happened with, with M. Poku. Yeah, I think I was more, not so much surprised that, Friedel got sacked. I, I was actually surprised they, they pulled the trigger as soon as they did. And, and probably at, a, at an awkward time because you have a short week, you played midweek, you have a home game coming up, you have the friendly with Chelsea. Um, this is not an opportune time for New England to try and pull off a, a, a new coaching search. I, I find the, the lack of quotes from, from the team and from the owners in particular to, to be a little bit damning, but I think that New England, what was perhaps best for the locker room or what it seemed best for the locker room was just, we're going to disconnect from this right now as soon as possible. We're not going to wait. We're not going to acknowledge anything that was maybe done well or anything like that. We're just going to move on and to not even have a significant press conference to only have Burns talk for seven minutes that rankled everyone yesterday. Uh, or, or, or during the week, that, that you have a, a major decision for the team. You're in last place, and your entire interview sessions are five, ten minutes long. Um, and, and that's, I think, what the fans are, are most upset about is, is okay, you, you fired Friedel, great. Now what? what? What else are you giving us besides the same old recycled quotes, the same old recycled statements about players, about investment, about stadiums, uh, what are you going to do now that was different when you hired Heaps? It was different when you hired Friedel. Um, are, are you actually going to find someone who has actual coaching experience this time? Are you going to give them the resources to compete? Or is this going to be, well, what's Steve Ralston up to? Um, hey, Mike Lapper won three out of four. Let's see if he wants to finish out the season. Give him a contract. Um, it, it seems... The team, I think, made the right decision to, to get rid of Friedel, but they weren't prepared to follow up with the aftermath. And it's, I don't know, it, it seems awkward to me that, that you want to fire Friedel at, at this juncture, but you're also not prepared from a, either a media standpoint or a, a media relations standpoint to, to follow up and, and let the fans know, hey, this is what we're trying to do now. You know, uh, one thing that stood out to me, um, when about Mike Lapper came across fantastic, by the way, in, in uh, his, his post game press conference, and he's clearly, uh, at least at this point, very uh, well liked among the players, and was was joking around with them and stuff. And uh, he did give a little bit, uh, short little, uh, you know, it's all of our fault what happened to uh, to to Brad. And but then uh, I, I noticed later on in his press conference yesterday. He, he very clearly tried to align himself as, uh, you know, uh, my mentor, Siggy Schmidt, uh, <laughs> as, if, uh, as if he hadn't been Brad Friedel's uh, assistant for the past couple of years. He very clearly uh, said, uh, you know, Siggy Schmidt is the one uh, that uh, kind of shaped my view of coaching and, 
and, uh, and and how I approach it and the way you have to connect with players and and uh, that it's a, a comprehensive uh, job and and uh, so so he was uh, clearly um, a little bit you know I don't know how, how conscious it was or if it was just truly how he feels uh, distancing himself a little bit from Brad Friedel and uh, and I think you're gonna see that the if if possible and of course the revs are legendary for not giving a ton of access that they're just going to try to shut this down and turn the page and, and pretend that the Brad Friedel era never existed. Uh, and, and you, you, you didn't see any of the players really, uh, you know, I don't know if they were coached on this or it was just their natural instinct not to say like, Oh, I'm, I'm glad that's over or something. But there was one, uh, Andrew Farrell, uh, similar to, you know, kind of, uh, uh, lapper, uh, you know, not directly criticizing Friedel, but saying that he's more of a uh, Schmidt guy, that uh, Andrew Farrell, one of his quotes that he, he gave to us yesterday was that, uh, you know, uh, Lapper, everybody everybody likes him. <laughs> uh, you know, he, 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 he talks to everybody. He's clear about what he wants from us. And it was just like mm-hmm. uh, it, the contrast between what we kind of understood were Brad Friedel's, uh, you know, habits or his process. Of, you know, you saw him say it. I forget if it was last week or whatever, that usually I don't talk to the team after games and stuff. And you've seen in the past guys who've been in his doghouse, you say like, uh, you know, did 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 Brad uh, tell you, uh, you know, what's going on? And they say, no, he hasn't talked to me for six months. Uh, so, you know, I saw that kind of contrast in what Andrew Farrell was saying about like, you know, this guy, he's great. He talks to us. He's like, he's nice to us. He, uh, he tells us what he wants and we understand what we're doing out there. So, uh, I, I think they're going to, I think it's, it's a, you know, maybe it's the honeymoon period, but um, I think they're just going to try to move on from Friedel, not, not mention it again. And then, uh, and then hope that this, uh, these good vibes uh, carry on into the future. And maybe just that contrast of what they've gone through under Friedel, a little strict maybe, or distant or whatever, as opposed to Lapper, who's very gregarious and, and, uh, he, they, people seem to shy away from calling him a player's coach, but he is kind of a, a player's coach, at least in the sense that Jay Heaps was kind of that way too. Yeah, and that, that brings me back to sort of to follow up on Carl to, to my main point of the game, which was we now know one of the things that I thought was bothering me for most of the year. We now know who the Revolution starting goalkeeper is, and that's Mike Lapper saying, hey, turn a train. Matt, get in goal. You're my guy. <laughs> and I think that's so the, – the, the, the Friedel era in a nutshell is if you actually – promote and back and give confidence to your players they will reward you for it and and i don't know if this is the the european locker room mentality or whatever brad was trying to bring in here but it failed it failed to take hold like in every facet and to have matt turner just say hey you're starting get in the goal you're my guy and then for him to go out five saves shut out for the first 89 minutes yeah, last goal is a little weird, whatever it happens. At that point, the game's wrapped up. I'm sure he'd like the shutout, but for all intents and purposes, you know, that to me is something that this team lacked was just a little bit of just self-confidence coming from the coaching staff, coming from Friedel. And Lappert can turn that around immediately. It doesn't mean the stats were good. The stats were terrible. Passing stats were terrible. Possession stats were terrible. Um, getting outshot, uh, outchanced, uh, everything about that game wasn't good. But at the end of the day, if you can sustain – slightly better periods of soccer convert your one or two chances you can win games it doesn't mean that it's going to be 
good soccer. The Revolution are not a good soccer team right now. It doesn't mean they have bad players. But this is sort of the first step to rebuilding. Okay, we have the, conf- the players' confidence back. Let's find a system where we can start to now build on top of a result like this. And, you know, uh, speaking to that, you know, him telling uh, Turner, you're my guy, and uh, just the kind of effect that can have, I think I always thought it was, you know, like uh, we knew that Friedel doesn't tell players uh, whether they're playing until he posts the roster, which I thought it's a little, I guess, you know, you can game plan in general, but if you don't know if you're playing or not, how much are you preparing? Or I guess the the idea is that you keep everybody on their toes, and and so they have to give their best to impress the coach and make it into the the starting eleven. But you think that maybe uh, after the final training session before the game, then you say, okay, this is my lineup for the week, or or whatever, and uh, or you know, not and not that say for example, Matt Turner, you know, deserves uh, the goalie spot for the rest of the season uh, you know if he slumps or something then you, you pull the plug and and switch to one of your other guys but uh i, I do think it has a you know friedel it seemed he done, didn't understand psychology uh, at all he every button that he pushed kind of backfired and, and stuff and ended up alienating players and and i do think uh and again maybe it's just the contrast but expressing some sort of confidence in the guys that saying you know, Matt Turner, you're my guy. I think that that means something and, and can inspire a player rather than keeping them on edge and, and, and end up having them end up, you know, not having a good time. I think everybody, when they enjoy their job, they're, they're better at it. And if you're constantly under siege psychologically, then uh, I think that hurts your performance. So I, I think that will be uh, something that will be welcome to the players, that different style of just being clear with them and telling someone that, you know, this is, you're my guy for this week and I, I'm going to give you a shot here or whatever. And just being a little clear about things and, and being a little more understanding with guys and be, I, I think that's going to be a, something that seems minor maybe, but can have a, a big impact uh, on the field as well. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent with Carl. And just to make a, a quick point, um, you know, you talk about the goalkeeper position. We've talked before about, you know, the striker position and how confidence is so key. Um, the goalkeeper position is probably even more key for, uh, you know, you, there's there's one position on the field where you can be sitting there for 80 minutes doing nothing and then be called on to, to make a big save. And there's there's so much of a mental game there. And, and Carl talked about that a little bit in general for, for field players. But if there was ever a position where Brad Friel should understand the mental aspects of it, it's, you know, goalkeeper where he, you know, was a, was a starting professional goalkeeper for 20 plus years at some of the high levels um so if there's ever you know an indictment to be said about brad friedel's uh you know coaching style to look at the fact that he couldn't even figure out how to coach the goalkeepers um is i think is a, is a pretty poor statement on on his coaching ability given that you know his knowledge and expertise in that area um and i think certainly you know when you're rotating through three different starting goalkeepers in a season you know it's pretty much unheard of at the professional level um and i don't think brad friedel you know, based, based on the results i don't think that was a you know revolutionary idea that brad friedel had as soon as somebody had a bad game to bench him you know at the goalkeeper position i think you have to have a little more faith and confidence in your players than than brad did yeah, and just kind of touch upon a point that you guys have already made. It, it seemed like Bradfield clearly, you know, had never worked with coaching a professional soccer team before. I know he coached on the youth levels of the United States, but, you know, it, it, it was very apparent as time went on that, you know, this was his first, 
you know, first team senior management job. Um, and I made a, I referenced a Brian O'Connell tweet from last year that, you know, Brad Friedel came in right as the Lee Wynn saga was going on. And, you know, Brian O'Connell back then reported that there were some reports of, you know, rifts in the locker room that, you know, a lot of the veterans on the team weren't happy with the way the Lee, Lee Wynn saga has been handled. And, you know, some people pointed out that was a Mike Burns thing. You know, Friedel certainly did inherit that situation. But Brad Friedel also said in the postgame that, he had Zach Haribo, so he didn't need Lee win in the 18. Um, and I'm sure that rubbed people the wrong way. And, you know, his first six months here, he was, you know, yeah, week to week, you need to earn your spot in practice. I post the lineups two weeks or two hours before. Um, you know, he, he brought in this kind of tough guy mentality. And I think when, you know, the Revs needed a pick-me-up and they, they lost the game against the Galaxy, and as the season went on and on and on, and it got worse and worse and worse for them, they clearly didn't respond to that anymore. And Carl, you say, you know, the locker room was totally miserable at the end of last year. Diego at the season finale, you know, there were talks of him and his dad trying to push a move elsewhere. Um, This is a team that looks like they are a more unified group when they're having fun, when they're enjoying their job, like you said, Carl. Yeah, it was a... It just seemed like he lost the locker room and it was a bit of a slow burn and it all boiled up to the point where uh, that Chicago game where everyone <laughs> everyone just quit on him. So um, hopefully going forward, you know, it, it's a bit of a happier locker room and and they're getting a little bit better results. Touching on that, though, I, I, uh, Jake, you stole my takeaway. Matt Turner back as the number one, the greatest goalkeeper in MLS has finally won back the starting job. Um, a bit interesting because one week ago we were talking about whether or not he would get the job over Cody Cropper. Cody Cropper yesterday was not even in the 18. Brad Knighton snuck back into the 18. So Cody Cropper demoted twice in the span of one week. I, I don't know who wants to take this one first, but um, do you guys read into that as maybe the Revs are moving on from Cody Cropper? Or do you just kind of think that might be a, a I don't know, a blip on the radar? I should note too. I should note too that he was not in the 18 all of last season, and he didn't have the most stellar 2017. So, I mean, I, I think it's a bit of a tough luck. But do you guys read a lot into that, or is that just me? You know, I think um, it's it's kind of a weird goalkeeping situation where you've got a guy like Knighton, who uh, you know is a pretty solid backup. He's a, a reliable one of the better backups, not a, uh, necessarily a starter, but he, uh, he's a guy you can trust back there and obviously a veteran. Uh, and, and he makes sense as your guy on the bench. And then, so you're, it's, it's just this weird situation where you're kind of picking between, uh, Cropper or Turner and then the other doesn't even make the, uh, the game day, uh, roster. Um, you know, for me personally, I've always thought that Matt Turner has a little more upside and, and I've I've thought that his development curve, um, because he uh, picked up the game later on. I think I don't think he played until high school or something like that, or maybe around that period. And junior year of high school, yeah. Yeah. So he uh, he, you know, is still relatively new to the game in, in comparison to uh, most guys who make it to this level have been playing since they're four or five years old or whatever. And so. Uh, so I've always thought that Turner had a maybe a higher development curve. Cropper is a seems to have all the right tools and stuff, but but can't put it together on the field. Um, and so, you know, you, you'd like ideally, and maybe Matt Turner can um, become this, uh, you know, a, a, one of the better goalies in MLS. But you'd ideally like to just finally solve that situation. And maybe it's none of those guys. Maybe it's finally you know bring in 
someone, uh, you know, with, uh, with some allocation money and, and getting a, a, a good, if not American goalie, whoever from, from around the region that's available. But, uh, I, I prefer Turner and I, I think he, you'd be wise to give him a run in there. Cause I, I just think you got to stop playing head games with these guys because, as as Sean mentioned, uh, goalie is maybe one of the most mental, uh, maybe the the position that relies on your confidence, you know, the most out of any. And uh, to to be screwing around with these guys constantly, uh, you know, I, I think it it doesn't help them. And uh, maybe that's something that Mike Lapper sensed also that um, it would really benefit Matt Turner to have someone instill confidence in him again after he lost his job this year and, and maybe not deservedly so. Jake, I want to kind of go to you you next, um, kind of touching upon something. We, we, we're going to bring it back to the San Jose game here, but uh, one of the bigger moments of the game was the uh, penalty kick drawn by Teal Bunbury. And as our uh, refereeing expert here, I wanted to get your take on that penalty kick because a lot of people thought it was not a penalty, thought it was a little bit soft. So um, whenever there's a controversial refereeing decision, we need your official statement. So, Jake, what would you think of the, the it, Bunbury call? Everyone is correct. It is a soft foul. The problem with a soft foul is that it is still a foul that occurred inside the penalty area, and after a review, we're going to point to the spot. I actually think that VAR got it right. I think the biggest debate was whether that was going to be a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. We can argue about maybe like the continuation of the foul or things like that. To me, the biggest foul was when Teal turned around and was nowhere even looking to shoot. Um, He got pulled back, and and I think that to me, if you're going to call that as the foul – and, and point to the spot, I'm okay with that just being a yellow card. Is it soft? Yes, but it was pretty obvious. Uh, I know Teal goes down at the end to really, you know, hammer home the whistle and, and everything else, but um, I, I strangely think VAR got that one right. I, I don't think it needs to be a red card. Um, I, I would like to see that called more in the box, um, and it's just not. I think that's why everyone thinks it's kind of sort of a strange play where it's like, well, that happens all the time. Why is that not called? This is well, because no one wants to give it a penalty. It's still a foul. But it, people are like, it's not a penalty. Yes, it is. It's a foul. It occurred in the box. It, it's clearly a foul. It's just a lazy foul because it's bad defending. Um, you know, that's sort of it. It seemed like an odd an odd week of the last couple of weeks for refereeing in games and Baltimore Toledo and, and yesterday seemed far more normal. Mm. Is, that, is that a word I want to use? Normal? Not as controversial, things like that. But it was a very good, very good sequence from the Revs. And, and, and I remember when they used to draw those types of penalties on a regular basis. Um, and it's nice to see that combination play rewarded either from getting, getting the penalty or just getting goals in general. I will say, too, while we're talking about Teal Bunbury, I was a little bit surprised. When the lineup came out, I, I really like the idea of a 4-1-4-1. I think it gets the um, top playmakers on the field, as, a, as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier. Um, but I was a little bit surprised to see Teal Bunbury get the start over Juan Fernando Caicedo, um, just because Caicedo has scored three goals in, I think, the last three games he played in. I think he played in... 
No, it might have been three goals in two games. Uh, I should look this up beforehand. But um, either way, he was a little bit hot until Bunbury uh, has not been able to hit water if he fell out of a boat. So, um, Sean, uh, do you agree with that assessment? What were your thoughts on Teal Bunbury yesterday? Yeah, no, that was that was my thought exactly. And I thought this game, too, I, I didn't think – I thought that, that foul kind of bailed them out a little bit because I don't think he – it was a fantastic pass from Brandon Bide to set him behind the defense. Um, and I thought that the soft foul kind of, you know, stopped him from having, you know, been being in a situation where he, he was, wasn't clinical enough. Um, you know, he should have, he should have put that away more quickly. He should have done better with that. And, you know, the, the foul kind of made it look like, Hey, he did a good job, won a penalty kick. But, you know, this was another game in which Teal Bunbury had three shots and none of them were on target. And if that penalty kick doesn't happen, I think we're again, talking about Teal Bunbury really struggling to, to find the net and find, find shots on target. You know, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but that was just my kind of thought in that play was, you know, great. The Revs got a penalty kick, but you know, Bunbury he got bailed out when again I don't think he was as clinical as he should have been um so yeah I was a little bit surprised that we didn't see Juan Caicedo start this one and that Till Bunbury keeps getting more and more chances up top going back to the psychological aspect of, of things and and I think that this may be one of Mike Lapper's uh talents uh it's a potential I mean we'll have to wait it's only one game but um that he seems to understand that you know his team back together just gone through and uh and possibly you know maybe this isn't the best uh decision trying to win games but for the the locker room and the club uh you know teal bunbury is one of the most popular guys on the team uh he's a he's a great guy uh everybody admires his work ethic and uh and maybe that you know he can be streaky and it doesn't always translate onto the field but uh teal bunbury is someone that you want to have uh, on your side, I think. And so maybe that was part of Lapper's thinking, you know, hopefully that's not offensive to Teal Bunbury that I'm, I'm thinking he chose him for his, uh, his leadership rather than his actual play. But, uh, I, I do agree. Uh, uh, Caicedo has been the better, uh, scorer, uh, this season. Um, and you know, maybe you'll see that, uh, in the future. But, uh, w- one thing I think is, you know, hopefully maybe we'll see, uh, with, with Lapper is, you want to get the best players on the field. And it seemed like Friedel never made a uh, concerted effort to try to fit Pania, uh, Diego, and Heal uh, together. And, and it, you know, specifically, you know, Pania and, and Diego were in his doghouse and uh, in and out of the lineup and stuff. But, uh, I, you know, I think potentially Apple realizes that you know, there's not going to be, you know, maybe there'll be some addition coming uh, in the next window, but this is the team he's got. And uh, and if he's going to turn things around, he's got to get his best players on the field playing well together. And it, it, it just thought it was a good, a good look putting Pania back in the starting lineup after him having been left out of the 18, which was a pretty conspicuous thing to leave. Uh, arguably, you know, along with Teal, maybe the most impactful player on the team out of your 18 entirely uh, to get both Pania and, and Lapper mentioned, you know, speaking directly to Pania and to Diego and, and to other players. But he mentioned those two specifically about buying back in and, and liked what he heard and, and wanted to give them opportunities. Pania specifically uh, was pretty impactful. Diego had a so-so game, but uh, you know, you, you'd want to get him, Back to contributing if you got if the team is is going to uh, climb back up the standings a little bit. 
Yeah, and the, the only other point that I wanted to touch on in this game is when you look at the lineup, I, I think it was overall, you know, the right choices to put out there. I, I, I would question, you know, maybe benching Scott Caldwell because I think we, we saw a lot of leadership from him during the tough stretch from the Revs. Um, but the, the one thought that I had about this game is, is looking at how it played out. You know, the fact that San Jose came into Gillette Stadium and finished with 73.3% possession, you know, I, I struggle in possession you know, means something, but it doesn't mean everything. But I, I struggle to think of many times in which teams at home um, that haven't had a red card have had that low possession. I can't really think of many instances in MLS history where I've watched games like that. Um, so, you know, yes, the Revolution got the lead, you know, somewhat early on. But even before that, they were they were really struggling in possession. Um, so I, I think their tactics worked against San Jose. I don't think San Jose is the most clinical team in the league. Uh, I think San Jose missed some good chances in this one. I don't think they're, you know, again, I don't think they're one of the best teams in the league in, by, by any stretch. Um, so it worked that the Revolution seeded possession kind of st- stuck back after that goal. They didn't press like, like Frida liked to do. Um, they, you know, to a certain extent, just played compact and, and, and smart soccer. Um, but it left me wondering, you know, how many times this year can you get, you know, 26% possession and be chasing a game all game without completely exhausting yourself? And, you know, yes, you might be able to do that against San Jose, but when you go up against a team like Atlanta or Toronto, you know, it, it, is this a sustainable tactic uh, that the Revolution can use to actually, you know, move forward towards the playoffs? Or is this just something that, you know, is going to work better than what Brad Friedel did, but it's still going to leave the Revolution in, in trouble? Uh, because, you know, it worked out great in this game. They got the 3-1 victory, uh, but I couldn't help but but look at the statistics that, you know, San Jose had more shots, San Jose had more possession, um, and and just think that, you know, if you're chasing a game for, for that long, there were there were periods of this game where San Jose had 95% possession over a five-minute stretch. Um, that, to me, just is, is worrying going forward. Maybe you guys disagree, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, if you thought what the Revolution did in this game as far as tactics-wise is actually a sustainable way to win uh, long-term. Oh, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't, but I, I've been clamoring about uh, not being able to hold on to the ball, not being able to see out a game for, for a, a long time. Uh, if the offense or the counterattack isn't working, what is the plan B, Ben? And, and under Brad Friedel, that's effectively, as far as what I'm concerned, got him sacked at the end. Uh, we can talk about not being able to control the locker room and not having a great relationship maybe at the end with the front office. At the end of the day, you have to put forth a game plan and a lineup that can perform and win, and he couldn't do that. He couldn't do it on the offensive side of the ball. He couldn't do it on the defensive side of the ball. And the disconnect between what New England was trying to do on the offensive side and what they were trying to do on the defensive side was such a wide gap um, that no matter what the next coach does, all you have to do is not lose by five goals. That's the level you have to get to, is just not lose by five. That is not exactly a difficult task here. Um, So to, to play... I don't know if it was a uh, a four four two a four one four one whatever the formation was it worked because Lapper was able to get guys in sync and it, again I don't think that was a difficult task based on what they were coming from but when everyone's on the same page you can make something that's maybe not great far more effective just based on team chemistry just based on team knowledge of what your game plan is. And I think yesterday it worked. Yes, the penalty was a little bit lucky. We talked about that. But for me, the biggest thing was you have Scott Caldwell and Zahibo on the bench. You're up by three, and you basically subbed all three of your attackers. I don't love that at all. Um, I'm a little shocked we didn't see De La Mea at some point, maybe to get by out of the game, maybe to move by up further up the field, move Farrell back out wide why none of the midfielders, the center midfielders got replaced. Um, not that it didn't work because you're up by three, but again, long-term, 
we always question Brad Friedel's subs and, and the timing of them. You know, here you've got a team that's been, you know, defending, 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 and to not give them any support besides, hey, let's get a bunch of guys on the field to with fresh legs to dump the ball up to them up the field to close out a game. Um, that's how you've lost probably three games this year or, or three leads this year. So, you know, I, I think obviously, you know, one game is nice. If it is sustainable, prove it to me. If this is something that can work, if you can win the game consistently, only having one third of the ball and counterattacking, more power to you. But people adjusted to Brad Friedel on this. They'll probably eventually adjust to Lapper on it as well. Um, like I said, we have we have to see long term. You know, any any one game in MLS doesn't mean anything. Let's see what the Revs can do. You know, up until the All Star break. Yeah, you know, I, I do agree with Jake that there are improvements that can be made, especially uh, game management uh, aspect. But uh, clearly, um, you got everybody's best effort, and uh, and that wasn't something that was happening in the final games under Friedel. And uh, maybe you know, not it's not sustainable long term. This type of Lopsided position, but uh, initially, as he figures things out, uh, getting that type of effort from everybody, I think might be able to cover up some of the uh, the learning curve for him. And uh, Seth and I, uh, Seth McComber, were uh, we're talking to uh, Gabe Fendez as we uh, as we often do. He he asked us, uh, "Hey, do you guys uh, remember what the possession uh, was this game?" And and Seth said, "Yeah, it was like uh, he had twenty five percent." Or so, and uh, Diego was was surprised, and I think it did feel lopsided. But I don't think uh, maybe they, or at least personally, when I was watching, I didn't think it was a seventy-five twenty-five game. It felt, even though obviously the possession is statistics are correct, that it felt more like two-thirds, one-third, uh, which is still you know not ideal. It's one of those games where maybe the stats. Uh, didn't tell the the whole story, or or you can overcome the stats to to win if you're getting that type of effort from everybody. Yeah, and I agree with you too. I think a lot of it too might have been situational where the Revs got an early lead and just kind of wanted to hang on, not necessarily get caught in the back because it seems like a game where they're kind of caught on the counter, um, especially with Andrew Farrell back there. Um, you know, Andy Baba and, and Andrew Farrell are arguably center backs three and four on this team, although I think Andy Baba has now moved himself up to center back two. Um, it might have been just a, a matter of they want to lock down and not get caught uh, too far out of place. And so as a result, they were sacrificing a little bit of possession. Um, the one other thing I'll touch on in this game before we move on, and Sean, you mentioned this um, at the start, but Taylor Buchanan had another uh, assist yesterday. He's now got two assists on the season, tied for the team lead, um, made an impact last night. Um, I, I think he's kind of worked his way into to that kind of top of the road, top of the uh, the bench, where we can kind of expect him to come on and take some minutes as a sub. Um, I think he's really justifying why he was a potential number one draft pick uh, in the super draft last season, and um, he, he's getting better and better every single week. Um, obviously, a, a great bit of skill there on the the uh, the Carlos Hill goal. So, uh, moving on from the San Jose game, we're not going to talk about the Chicago Chicago game because that, that was miserable, uh, and I don't think there's a whole lot to say other than, um, you know, they quit. Uh, they, they didn't seem to have a whole lot of fight in them left, and there's not really much you can take away from that. So we're going to move on to uh, kind of some other news of the week, uh, and we already talked about Brad Fiedel's firing. I think a lot of people, though, are out there wondering why Mike Burns remains, and Carl, you mentioned earlier 
that, you know, this roster is better than they've been achieving. Um, they have been uh, underperforming. They, they haven't reached their full potential. Sean and I both uh, kind of thought that this was a potential playoff team and they they haven't been performing. They're down in that bottom three. Yes, it was a Brad Friedel problem, but Mike Burns, this was his guy that he brought in. Uh, this is a guy that he stood by. There was a lot of questions whether or not it was appropriate that Brad Friedel was hired, uh, considering Mike Burns' personal relationship with Brad Friedel. And so a lot of people myself included, expected that when Brad Frieda left, Mike Burns also would leave. Uh, and that's not the case. He held a seven-minute press conference, as Jake said. Um, Mike Burns is still with this team. So um, I guess the question is, do you guys have a issue with Mike Burns retaining his position as GM, or do you think he should have left um, with uh, Brad Friedel? Jake, I'll start with you. Uh, any, any thoughts on uh, Mike Burns remaining as GM? The New England Revolution are in need of a full-blown reset from top to bottom. And and I think I wrote about this in some capacity when Jay Heaps was fired. Uh, it doesn't matter if you hire Brad Friedel. You still have to give the head coach the tools and the investments to succeed. Brad Friedel was given none of those things and, and sunk his own boat in a very, very short amount of time. But it doesn't matter who the head coach is if you're going to consistently spend in the bottom – third, bottom quarter, whatever of the league. Jay Heaps worked a lot of wonders to finish third in, in the 2013 season. Uh, they lost in the playoffs. Next year they get Jermaine Jones in the summer, and that kicked off probably the best six months, or the best three months of soccer that this team has played probably since Nickel was the coach. That was probably 10 or 11 years ago, back when you know New England was going to the MLS Cup a lot. Uh, this has been a bad team for a decade it has been stuck in mls 1.0 and if you're not going to to be serious about this head coach or about looking forward to the 2020 season and using the summer window to set up that and you have a full off season and a full half season with a new coach or a new program i, I don't know when you're going to do it and, and this is a first team that you know we saw yesterday i don't think a lot of these guys are bad Carlos Gill is good at soccer. Juan Fernando Caicedo is good at soccer. Panilla is good at soccer. Fagundes, Bunbury, Aguidelo, Caldwell, uh, Luis Caicedo. These, these are not bad players. This is not a team that was just blown up two weeks ago and are just playing. Um, this is a team that needs just a little bit more support, and they can be successful. We saw that five years ago. We need to see it again, and, and it's just – frustrating that we effectively every couple of years just seem to be having the same conversations about what this team the expectations should be what we what we when we get compared to the patriots what their expectations are versus the reality of what the revolution are and right now the revolution are a bad soccer team that can change i think very very quickly if the ownership if the front office wants it to and i don't know that this is the group Based on the last six, seven, eight years of not being successful, I wouldn't use uh, this front office to to move forward. I would I would clean it out almost entirely, bring in a new coach over the next rest of the year, and uh, let them set up for twenty twenty so that you can use a draft, use two transfer windows, really set up the beginning of twenty twenty as a springboard for this is where we're going to take the step into. You know, MLS 2.0, MLS 3.0, we're going to have, you know, two solid DPs. We're going to have a back line of 
you know, really strong players, domestic, international, whatever it is. Uh, and that's the way that I would do it. No, I would, I would not move forward uh, with Mike Burns and, and let him pick a, another head coach. So before I jump in on Mike Burns, I do want to caveat everything I'm about to say by saying I agree 100% with what Carl said at the beginning of the podcast and that you know anything you say about Mike Burns should not take away from the fact that Bradfield did a terrible job coaching this roster. Mm-hmm. And I do think that people have kind of you know, called out, you know, Brad Friedel maybe, uh, or called out Mike Burns so much to the extent that they've ignored the fact that, that Brad Friedel did a terrible job. Um, and that this roster, well, nowhere near being a contender, um, you know, as Greg, as you said, is one that, you know, the two of us at least thought that, you know, could compete for the, the bottom tier playoff spots in the East. And I still think has the talent to do so. Um, but with that said, you know, Mike Burns, and it's, it's, you know, a lot of people are furious that he only went seven minutes in the press conference. I'm actually not sure that was his decision to only go seven minutes based on, on how that ended. I think he might have been ready to go more. Um, but his answers in that press conference, and he was asked some tough questions, um, but his answers in that press conf- conference about, you know, I don't evaluate myself on the recent years. I evaluate myself on the past 15 years are kind of ridiculous. First of all, why is he evaluating himself? Um, but second of all, you know, Sports of any business is a what have you done for me lately business. And what has Mike Burns done for this team lately? Is this team better now than it was, you know, the roster wise under Jay Heaps? You know, I don't I don't think so. Um, I think you can make the case. And I think I discussed this with with some of these the guys in the podcast before um, that. It's you know about the same. But, you know, the league's getting better and the roster needs to get better. Um, and, you know, when. Mike Burns goes back and say, let's look at 15 years. So I guess he's going back and, and counting in the, you know, the 06 and 07 um, cup final runs that the, the revolution had and which of which he was you know a, a part of. Um, but those rosters were largely inherited. Uh, the revolution already had a very, very good team where he got in a position to in, influence the roster. You know, Taylor Twelm and Steve Ralston, uh, Shari Joseph, all those guys, Clint Dempsey, all those guys were already on the team um, when he took over. And, you know, he added a couple pieces that played a role in their MLS Cup, you know, runs. Guys like Wells Thompson that were, you know, drafted when he was in charge. Um, but it, it's kind of ridiculous for him to, to go back and say, look at 15 years. And, you know, we've been to, you know, three MLS Cups or whatever it is under under his tenure. You know, there's one year he gets credit for, in my mind. That's 2014. Uh, 2014, you know, you can say, well, he got lucky with Jermaine Jones and plenty of people have said that, but you know, he built a good roster and for six months it was really good and they made it to an MLS cup final. Um, but really in, in my mind, that's all he really should get credit for. Uh, you know, they weren't good enough the year before that they, you know, Jay Heaps, I think had a poor roster that he had way outperformed that season. And Jay Heaps deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think Jay Heaps was a, you know, okay hire by Mike Burns. I think people are too harsh on that hire, but you know, you look at the roster, you look at the Brad Friedel hire, um, and there's more negatives than positives for Mike Burns. He's had 15 years. Um, I think it's time to move on. I think the revolution do need to hit the reset button. Um, and you know, that includes moving on from Mike Burns. And I understand why the, the fans are frustrated, but again, caveat all that Brad Friedel did a terrible job as head coach and that should not be ignored. And he was certainly part of the problem and a huge part of the problem. Um, it's just, there's a lot more underlying problems that need to be fixed by this team as well. And, and one of those I think is finding a new general manager. I'm not even uh, playing devil's advocate here. I, I just, I genuinely, I guess I, I genuinely have a slightly different opinion than I think uh, uh, 98% of the rest of uh, Rev media and people who follow the team have, which is that, uh, you know, I think you, you have to, and this doesn't absolve Mike Burns of, of his many uh, poor decisions. I, I would say I don't think he's been a good general manager, but I think you also have to remember the tools that he has to work with are, um, 
it's not one of the better jobs in MLS. He doesn't have a ton of freedom. You do, and you even look at stuff like the uh, number of scouts that other teams have compared to the refs and stuff and, and how that affects uh, talent identification uh, compared to just, you know, what you can re- watch online or what agents send you or stuff like that when you don't have the guys to actually go out and, and scout in other countries and, and unearth uh, talent that you can sign uh, and, and then you go back to, you know, the financial limitations that the crafts have, have put on him, uh, I think is greatly restricted, uh, potentially what he can do. And, uh, you know, certainly there have been, uh, a lot of decisions and signings that didn't work out and, and, uh, kind of heard through the grapevine that he's not the easiest, uh, general manager to work with uh you've heard that from uh, his his nemesis uh ron waxman uh who's yep. pretty outspoken about that and so there are definitely fellow gms too with that with that poll <laughs> yeah yeah so there's definitely negatives about mike burns but you have to also realize that he doesn't have quite the same resources and also that uh you know and this is maybe you can say this is partly his fault, but New England isn't necessarily a destination uh, for for players uh, who know their reputation as a cheaper franchise and and which plays on uh, what seems to be the consensus. You know, there are other turf fields out there, but people always mention, yeah, I don't want to play on the New England's turf because I mean, my knees are going to be gone in, in uh, after a season or two. And uh, just generally, it's not a a spot that guys say, I want to go play there. So I, you know, there are a lot of uh, hurdles for Mike Burns and, uh, and, but, you know, saying all that, I don't think he's done a great job, um, especially lately. And, uh, and part of that, uh, I think, you know, he maybe empowered Brad Friedel a little too much to shape the roster the way Friedel wanted to, uh, which seemed kind of forced on him, but uh, obviously didn't handle the Lee, Lee win situation very well. Maybe could have, if he was going to uh, deal the uh, get, do it at a better time when he could have got a uh, better return on, on that. Um, and then, you know, lastly, I just think we live in reality and uh, you got to think, you know, uh, in, in the regular world, does Mike Burns probably get fired? Yes. But in the craft world, he's their guy. He does what they want. And and that from their evaluation, I think he's done not a good job, but probably not a fireable job. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he survives all this into next season and beyond. I actually have a quick question. And in the interest of time, we'll just do a quick um, yes, no. In the event that the Revolution finished in last place in the Eastern Conference, let's say hypothetically that um, you know Lapper stays in place as the interim manager, and the Revolution, you know, they 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 announce a permanent coach at the end of the season. Under the under the assumption there is no head, new permanent head coach announced until the end of the year. Let's say the Revolution end in last place in the Eastern Conference. Yes or no? Do you think that the Revs will replace Mike Burns as GM? Yes. Yes. I'm going to say yes, and I just wanted to add one quick point to what Carl was saying, and that's just, you know, when we say the the crafts haven't authorized enough spending, I generally tend to agree with that. My only, you know, 
one bit of unknown here is, you know, we very frequently hear about, you know, the revolution were in on this player or they're in on that player. And they're usually players that would have cost a lot of money. Um, you know, Mpoko being the latest, <laughs> even, uh, you know, Grant Wall you know, had his piece about the ambition rankings. Now Jonathan Kraft called him up and said, well, I you know, said we were going to try to get Ronaldinho and it didn't work out. Um, so, you know, my, my one question there when we talk about resources is, you know, have the Crafts given Mike Burns resources and has he just failed at spending them? Um, and, you know, I don't think they've given him enough resources, but I do wonder if there have been, you know, some big names out there that Kraft has authorized Mike Burns to go out and sign. And, you know, for whatever reasons, Mike Burns has failed at, at signing him because we keep hearing these names. And at some point, some of that has to fall on Mike Burns' inability to bring a player in here. And, and like Carl said, it's not the most desirable location. So it's hard to know how much blame to place, but... Um, when you do hear those names that would have cost a lot of money that um, il- allegedly the revolution were in on, um, you do have to wonder a bit if you know part of that's on Mike Burns' inability to, to reel in a player when he has the money to do so. Yeah, and not only that, I, I, we're talking about players that are not bringing in. It should be noted that there was a report that the revolution are having people, uh, coaches interested in their vacant head coaching job, although Julian Cardillo did say that. He, he he hinted that that wasn't exactly accurate or, or that there are some people that are interested in the job. But if you're a head coach, I'm not sure why you would want to come to New England right now. You're going to be hamstrung by the Crafts resources. You have a general manager that's not well-liked in the industry. So I, I don't know. This is a very, very difficult job for whoever is the next head coach. And after you know 20 or two dozen head coaching candidates two years ago, I don't know if you can necessarily call those – candidates back you know back into the interviewing room and i'm not sure they're going to have the same amount of um gusto for this new england revolution job so um yeah i agree with everything you said there sean um i'm a little surprised too that mike burns he made a comment the other day saying uh you know there's some people with negative opinions of them there are some people with positive opinions of them i'm not sure who those people with positive opinions are um it's literally the uh the episode of the simpsons where everyone's booing uh mr burns and he's saying are they booing me and they're like no it's boo earns boo earns i can just picture biello being like no they're saying boo earns they like you it's okay uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure who the positive opinions of mike burns are because everyone who has um or at least everyone who states talks about mike burns publicly on the record it does not seem to be positive so um, Appar- apparently the crafts have a positive view of him. Uh, they still must, here. must love him. And Brian Biello, too, who is above him in the uh, on the hierarchy, obviously likes him, too. So, I mean, maybe he turns it around, but I, I don't have a whole lot of faith. And um, should be noted, too, that Midnight Riders called for him to be fired in an open letter. So they don't have a lot of faith in him either. Um, let's hop over to that Mpoku uh, uh, failed signing that you were talking about, Sean. Um, it came out on Tuesday. Uh, some some reports out in Belgian media um, reported that uh, Mpoku basically turned down the Revolution's offer to join the team. So it appears that he was the designated player that Brad Friedel was talking about. Brad Friedel and Poku uh, crossed paths in Tottenham years ago. So that kind of checks off that box too. Sounds like too, since there was some rumors of it happening in January, that the team wanted to hold on to the player until May or July or whenever uh, before making it official. And I'm total speculation, but it kind of sounds like Mopoku has changed his mind and changed his tune, whether or not it was because the team is at the bottom of the standings, whether or not it seemed like Brad Friedel was going to be fired anyway. To the Could have, uh, could have been salary, too. It, it's possible it was over salary, too. The, the article that came out that it basically left it pretty open-ending on whether it was salary or for not wanting to join, join the team reasons. Correct. It, it should be noted, too, though, that the Revs did uh, throw a ton of money at this. There was a $4.5 million transfer fee, uh, and then the total... 
uh, package between the transfer fee and the salary was $14 million. So that leaves about $9.5 million in salary. We don't know how many years that's over, but I, I'm guessing it's at least four years. It's about $2.5 million uh, a season. So, um, Carl, I'll head to you first. Um, are, are you under the assumption that this is the designated player that the Revolution were signing? And um, uh, the second question I'm going to ask you, too, is do you think this was the nail in the coffin for, for Brad Friedel in terms of, you know, once this thing fell through, that, that was kind of the writing on the wall? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do believe that's the player and nothing against the, the player. But in uh, in what seemed to be uh, typical uh, Brad Friedel fashion, it just uh, didn't make sense to me. It wasn't what, <laughs> wasn't what the team needed. Uh, they have uh, decent. I mean, I guess you can upgrade on the wings, and and I know Lapper has has said uh, that he wants uh, Diego Fagundes to play centrally, but it didn't seem like the uh, the urgent need, uh, and it seems like a a, a position that uh, that the Revs already have, uh, if not you know uh, you know outstanding. You got Pania on one side, and then it's kind of an open question who's going to start on the on the other side, but. Uh, uh, they they certainly have plenty of depth uh, in those uh, spots. Uh, so, and I, I think uh, it it probably was um, you know contributed uh, to or maybe uh, obviously the, I think the results are the the biggest uh, factor in Friedel finally uh, getting fired and and uh, the what you could see on on the field just the team uh, you know not. Uh, losing the team, and uh, so I, I think it was a contributing factor, and maybe, um, but it, it's maybe one of those things that uh, maybe it was it was better that it, it didn't work out um, because it, it could be that money could be spent somewhere uh, where the Revs really need it, uh, you know, a, a really high quality defensive midfielder, finally uh, fixing the back line to a certain extent, or or uh, you know getting a a forward who is uh, reliable. Um, so I think there are other areas that the money would would have been better spent. Um, but I do think it, it makes a lot of sense because uh, the Revs were rumored uh, to be uh, looking at Mpoku, uh, even I think it was back in the preseason and uh, around the time when they got uh, Carlos Heel. Uh, so it, it and uh, the fact that they crossed paths at Tottenham, uh, it, it all makes sense. But, uh, you know, it, I don't know. It just and and it you know it's impressive the amount of money that the that the revs were willing to spend on on this player. Uh, maybe uh, spend it on on another player though. Yeah, and and I, I will say too, you made a lot of the points I was going to follow up with. It seems like to me you have Christian Pania is a winger necessarily the best allocation of resources if you are going to make a splash. I don't know what that says about the team's confidence in Christian Pania. Maybe that speaks a little bit about um, what Friedel thought of Christian Pania, not necessarily the front office. Obviously, you mentioned that Pania was out of the 18 and he, he was brought back in, but um, I, I think this was the DP. I think this was Friedel's guy. It fell through, um, and and I think the front office they were negotiating final terms in the front office, knowing that Brad Friedel was on his way out, um, didn't want to, to move forward with it. Cause it is a huge commitment. It, it, it is likely a, a larger commitment um, than Carly's heel. So Jake, uh, what were your thoughts on the Mpoku transfer falling through? If, if my thought would, would be this is that if, if the only way that, that Brad Friedel, that you're going to bring players in is based on the fact that it's Brad Friedel's guy. I don't know why, why we're worried about Mike Burns at all, because Mike Burns doesn't have the connections to bring anyone in of that caliber of player. Uh, and if that's true, then that's a problem. If we're hinging your recruiting efforts on the guys the head coach knows and the head coach is out the door 
and that's your only plan for the summer transfer window. Again, I reiterate my point of this entire team needs to hit the reset button and start over because you have frayed every relationship you can think of domestically. No one wants to work with this team. Uh, no one wants to maybe come to this team. Whatever the reasons are, separate yourselves from as many of those reasons as possible. If Brad Friedel was one, that's great. I think Mike Burns is another one, and that needs to go. Yeah, and one team that did want to make a trade with the Revolution was uh, reportedly FC Cincinnati. Rookie Uh-oh. mistake by them. Uh, one day before the Mpoku uh, news came out, there was an offer. Uh, 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 there was a report that there was an offer in the offseason by Julian Cardillo. Uh, Cincinnati apparently offered 150000 in allocation money. Uh, it wasn't specified if it was Gam or Tam. Um, but originally, the Revolution no commented this. They, they denied it a little bit afterwards. But um, apparently, FC Cincinnati wanted Gabriel Somi, who has made the 18 once the season and has not been in a game since, I think, last July and obviously has been in Brad Friedel's doghouse. Um, ever since the report also said, interestingly enough, that the revolutionary have considered sending Gabriel Somi to Birmingham uh, down at uh, any rev south with uh, Jay Heaps and Tommy Sohn. Um, so that's a bit interesting that the revolution turned down an offer and and would rather not get one hundred and fifty thousand in allocation, spend over four hundred thousand salary and burn an international roster spot just to prevent a third string left back who they're not going to put in the game that uh, they they prefer to send to, to not get that and instead send him down to Birmingham. Um, Sean, does this trade make any sense? Yeah. So the, the first thing, you, this trade make yeah, any sense? Just, well, just, just to, to clarify, I think the revolution came out and called it the, the report wildly inaccurate, but also didn't flat out details deny it. Of, yeah, the details of, of the report, which, and it's also worth noting that Gabriel Somi was, you know, reported in, in Swedish media, I believe, um, you know, several months ago as saying the same thing that, you know, Cincinnati had made an offer for him and the revolution turned it down. And those were, you know, supposedly reported as Gabriel Somi's own words. So I do tend to believe that there was an offer. We don't know the details of it. Maybe it was the, the Birmingham thing that was inaccurate. Maybe it was the, the price that was inaccurate. But, you know, Greg, you and I have talked many times about how the revolution should have bought out Gabriel Somi before the season started. Um, so if there was any offer on the table and, and from what little rumors I've heard of this one, um, and just to be clear, there were a lot of people out there that said, oh, it doesn't make any sense. They signed Greg Garza really quickly after the season started. Um, from from what little details I've heard about this, uh, my understanding is that this offer actually came later in the offseason after they had signed Greg Garza, uh, which to me, um, you know, makes sense because Greg Garza was out their entire preseason. So they probably, you know, they don't have another backup left back. They've been playing a right back at left back. So it makes perfect sense that they'd want another left back and one that was relatively cheap. Um, so even if the details of this report are wrong, let's say that, you know, they came in late in the preseason and wanting Gabriel Somi, even if they offered 50000 in, in allocation money, for the very reasons we talked about in the last podcast that they should have bought him out, they should have jumped on that transfer offer. It makes zero sense to me that this guy that clearly, you know, and even by then a preseason was clearly not part of Friedel's plans. He was you know, playing with the, the reserves and, uh, you know, never really rotating in with the, with the starters um, during the preseason. It, it just makes absolutely no sense and is completely mind-boggling that they wouldn't have jumped at the offer to, to offload a guy that was making over $400,000 a year in salary and taking up an international roster spot on a team that only has one open international roster spot. It's, it's, it's just crazy. 
Yep, absolutely. And um, it's worth noting, too, that there is value in the international roster spot. I, I know a lot of people said, well, it's only 150000 worth of allocation money. Just some recent trades here in 2019. Um, Houston traded uh, 75000 in GAM and 100000 in TAM. Um, Cincinnati, it, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll make a point here in a second, but Cincinnati traded an international roster spot for 150000 in GAM. Uh, so really, if you're looking at a total value, Trading someone who's owning an international roster spot is really it's it's kind of double the value where you're getting in $150,000 in allocation and then you're getting value. You're getting value in, in vacating that uh, international roster spot. Um, I do want to point out that Cincinnati that trade happened on April 5th. So I mean. I don't know the timing of this, Sean. You, you mentioned too. You, you've heard whispers about when these um, the, these rumors came in. April fifth, maybe that was a spot for Somi. Maybe this trade happened in the beginning part of the year. Maybe it happened in preseason. And when the Somi thing fell through, maybe they realized they had an international spot. They're not. They're not looking at that's total speculation by me. But I thought that was pretty interesting. Those that story and and, and kind of connecting the dots there um, between those two things. The other thing too, I, I will say, and this also goes back to Brad Friel, but we talked about the Lee Wynn situation. Gabriel Somi, from everything we've heard from the Far Post podcast, people have said that he's a very well liked guy. Um, you know, a lot of people teammates seem to speak highly of him. When you see a teammate like that buried on the, the bench and the team isn't letting him move on to another team and move on with his career, I'm sure that doesn't sit very well with the other players on the team. So uh, I, I think that, I mean, again, that's total speculation on my part, but we talk about the culture of the revolution and we talk about kind of the locker room that Brad Friel was, was running. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, if this report is true or if it's anywhere close to being true, I know the details were, you know, <laughs> argued against. Maybe there was no offer of allocation money still i i think the fact that the revolution have not moved on from gabriel somi is pretty astonishing so um we have some listener questions here um we'll we'll try to go through these really quick but um first off do you think the chance and signs will make a significant impact on the firing of mike burns um i personally don't anyone want to jump in think that this is going to have a major effect on the team or, or on mike burns's employment status going forward i'd like to say yes but i think the answer is no Agreed. Okay. <laughs> um, Cameron Young, will this spur run similar to Manchester United uh, where an inter-manager came in uh, and, and kind of turned that culture around, or was this a one-game occurrence? Carl, let's start with you. Uh, you think this is a one-game occurrence, or do you think that uh, Mike Lappert might turn this thing uh, around? You know, I uh, with the caveat, uh, you keep asking, say it's one game but uh i i think mike lapper might be a diamond in the rough uh you know it it seemed that uh he got along really well with the players he spoke individually with most of them already he communicates with them uh they seem to respect him uh he's he's a very uh you know he's joking around with the players he was joking around with scott caldwell and 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 scott didn't seem pissed that he didn't play and stuff and and uh you know, he it seems like he's he's gone over well in the locker room. And I asked myself, how is how is this guy on Friedel's staff with that culture, but being such a different personality? And I guess it's just deference to the guy who's in charge. But you look at at Lapper's career, and uh, it's interesting because I I had barely heard of the guy before uh, before they named him the uh, interim uh, uh, coach, but. You know, you look, he, he was a national team player. He was MLS veteran. He played in Germany. 
Um, you know, he, he coached as he as he uh, smartly mentioned. He's a uh, Siggy Schmidt guy. Uh, you know, maybe the most highly regarded, well liked coach in MLS history. Uh, and they, you know, uh, and I, I I just think you know it, it could work out. I don't know if it's likely that it works out, but I think it's possible he works himself into the conversation into being one of the guys they consider. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't have said that a couple days ago. I would have thought he was just you know, a placeholder until they find the permanent guy. But if he can turn around the season a little bit and uh, maybe not necessarily move the playoffs, but at least make it back to respectability, uh, I think there's a chance that he could be the guy, especially since uh, you know it, it's not a job that people are knocking down the doors to be the evolution head coach it might be tough to attract uh, a high level experience a lot of people have said you need a guy that's coached before uh, instead of just hiring first-time head coaches uh, but you know it, it's going to be hard to find that guy and and I think personally Mike Burns doesn't necessarily want someone with the authority that could threaten his job and uh, Mike Lapper could could fit into that. Um, I also like the idea of someone, you know, a, a former Revs guy, a legend uh, like Shari Joseph or or Ralston or, or someone like that potentially coming in. Again, you know, not that much experience, but uh, I think those are your options. And if those are your options, then maybe Lapper isn't the worst uh, alternative in the short term as the Revs rehab their image. I also want to point out that if Mike Lapper is this well-liked in the locker room, if it's at all possible to keep him on the staff, if, if whoever else comes in afterwards and just say, hey, we want to keep Lapper here. We're going to give you a couple of other assistants. You can bring in your own fitness guy, your own goalkeeper coach, but we want him to stay. We like him. If that's what we get out of the next couple of months or, or weeks with, with Mike Lapper, I'm perfectly fine with that. If this is the response that he has – and the respect that he has with this team already, uh, keeping that around, even as an assistant with the same role he was in before he became the interim head coach, I think that would be perfectly fine if if that is maybe a caveat or something that is asked of the new manager. Hey, we already have him. We'd like to keep him here, see how workable that is, how, um, how much a new coach would be like, no, I really want to bring in my own new staff and see if it's possible uh, to keep Mike Lapp around if the response the next couple of weeks continues like this. Uh, Marcos Aguilar asks us, uh, what formation should we expect moving forward? Also, which current players should we expect to play a role for the Revs in the upcoming years? Um, Sean, uh, actually, before we get going, Carl, are you still with? Oh, Carl left. Well, I'll give his Twitter account at the end. He had to go. It's Game of Thrones time. But uh, Sean, uh, what formation should we expect moving forward? And what players do we expect being a major contributor in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think the formation worked um, this week, so I think we're going to see more of that. My only thought there is that when you go up against a team with a more potent attack, um, that the revolution formation that they played on Saturday is, is a bit too easy to expose, doesn't have quite the defensive coverage I'd like to see. Um, I have you know, said earlier on in the season I expected a 4-5-1 to be the formation of choice. Brad Friedel certainly couldn't make that work. Maybe Mike Lapper can. I think going forward, um, when you're facing a, a tough opposition, you kind of need to have that extra depth back there with, with Caldwell, but perhaps besides Casado, um, and then you know figure out who plays up top with with you know Heel, Fagundes, and Pania if they can make that work. Or if you know Fagundes needs to play centrally, maybe you put Buchanan out there on the right and you know start whoever you're most 
form striker is. Um, but I expect what we saw this game to, to, to go going forward until it doesn't work. Um, and then I expect at some point to, to see a 4-5-1. Um, but I think there's you know a lot of players in this roster that the, the team can can use going forward long term. Um, you know, he'll still only, what, 26. He'll be you know a big part of this roster. Pania, they paid a transfer fee in the offseason. I think he's here to stay. Um, you know, maybe Fagundes is going to take off if a transfer offer comes along. Um, but, you know, the, there are some good pieces offensively. Caicedo, you know, as a defensive midfielder, I think has a lot to offer this team. Um, you know, those are some of the guys that I see as kind of the, the young core. Um, and then defensively, I think they still need a lot of help just about everywhere. Uh, but there are some, you know, young core pieces in, in Heal and Pania. Um, if they can keep Fagundes around there and him and Caicedo as well. Um, you know, those are the names that kind of jump to me as, as guys that need to be a big part of this team's future. Yeah, for, formation-wise, I'd like to see the revs be more flexible. You don't always have to stick to a, a 4-4-2 or a 4-1-4-1 or a 4-2-3-1, whatever it is. Um, I think there are games where like, like San Jose is a perfect example. You can maybe be a little bit more attack minded, but there are far more teams where you're going to need those two holding mids. You're going to need Scotty Caldwell to close out a game. I'd like to see the revs finally have a clear, whether by subs mid game or, or game to game tactics wise, be far more flexible with the formation. You don't need to always do one thing. Uh, this is a team that should have enough flexibility and enough guys that can play different spots um, that they should be able to pull that off and, and always sort of be giving different teams a different look every week to keep them on their toes. And that might be an advantage for a team that is struggling down at the bottom. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, the one thing I will say is one person that I, I can guarantee is not going to be here, well, besides Gabriel Somi, is I think Michael Mancien, Um, I, I think that's a guy that was brought in as a Friel guy. And if I remember correctly, his contract is up at the end of this year. Um, I can't imagine he's going to be brought back. Um, in terms of major contributors, I agree with you, Sean. I think Christian Benia is going to be here for a couple more years. I think Luis Caicedo is going to be here another couple years. I think Diego might be on his way out. I know he's got one more option year, but I think it might be time for him to move on from the club. Um, and I also want to say that I think Tayon Buchanan, he, he's worked his way into the rotation right now. I wouldn't be surprised if they try to figure out a way to uh, make him a part of the team uh, day in and day out. And I also wouldn't be surprised to see Justin Rennix maybe not starting, maybe play a super sub, maybe start 15-ish games every year. But I, I think he's a guy that they're going to want to develop over time. And I know he's not making a lot of appearances right now. I think they're trying to um, get him healthy for the U-20 World Cup uh, coming up next month. I think Justin Rennix, we're going to see a lot of him in 2020. So I'll throw those names out there. John Trainer asks us a coaching question. Um, if you were GM of the Revs and you could pick anyone within reason to be the next head coach, who would it be? And I'm going to start here because uh, I have who I think would be a great fit. Uh, and I think you guys are going to call me out for this one because you're going to say this is not within reason. But hear me out. You need a coach who is smart tactically. You need a coach who has... Uh, first team managerial experience. You need a coach who has knowledge of MLS. Uh, and you also need, you know, we talk about bringing in a DP who is a marketable star and is bringing in people, not just, you know, MLS fans, but the the guy that are going to, the guys that are, you know, wearing Liverpool shirts and Man United shirts. And, and you want to bring in the casual soccer fans that follow worldwide soccer. So I think maybe you don't bring a DP that can bring in the casual soccer fans. Maybe you bring in a coach with a big name. So, with that being said, if I was GM, I am opening up the pocketbook and I am bringing in Terry Henry as the next head coach of the revolution. Sean, what do you think of that? No. Oh, man. No? Uh, I don't know how I feel about that one. Got to get him before the Red Bulls. That is a great choice. That is a great choice. 
I don't think his I don't think his tenure in Monaco uh, leads me to be too oh, excited oh, about oh, that. Oh, oh, oh! But this is a step down, and he knows the MLS. Oh, I keep doing that MLS very well. He knows the league very well. I think that's a great choice. Great choice, Greg. Um, I'll give you a second name because that one is not very popular. Um, and this is kind of a little bit off the board, but we talk about the youth that the revolution have. Uh, you, I, I would want to focus on a coach that uh, is able to coach up some young talent. Uh, so I would actually go with Jeremy Gunn. He's the two-time NCAA Division One Coach of the Year at Stanford. He won three consecutive college cups. He's interviewed for the San Jose job in, uh, last year uh, uh, when he took over for Steve Ralston, who was on the uh, was, was uh, uh, the interim there. He also interviewed for the Colorado job when they went with Anthony Hudson. So Jeremy Gunn has been in consideration for MLS jobs. Uh, I think he's been a very, very successful coach at the college level. I think he's ready to make the jump to MLS. So that would be my second choice if I'm not not allowed to get Terry Henry, but whatever. Sean, who do you got? <laughs> so I, I kind of like your thought process with coaching up youth. The one thing I will say is I think the revolution need to hire somebody from outside the organization. I, as you know, as I've said before, I'm a big fan of Steve Ralston. I think he could be a good coach somewhere. I, I think he's a fantastic guy. And you know, personally, I think it'd be great to have him as a coach because I think he'd be a good guy to interview. But I don't think that's the direction the revolution go in. I think they need to find somebody that you know can can challenge Mike Burns and can challenge the the front office and has different ideas that are outside of the revolution organization. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've seen, if I'm looking realistically, I've seen the name Tab Ramos thrown out there. Um, and that's a guy that I could kind of get behind. I had a lot of experience at the the youth national team level. Um, and if he has a successful U20 world cup and maybe he's looking to come to MLS and, you know, the revolution would probably have to overpay for him just because that's, you know, that's the revolution situation. Uh, but that would be, the name that I throw out there is someone I'd like to see the, the revolution sign. I know that's not very original, but um, I think the revolution need to go in a direction that's not a former player and, and not a former uh, longtime member of one of the past coaching staffs. You're all wrong. Although I like Tab Ramos. I like Tab Ramos. That's a good, that's a good shout out. I also am not against going to the college ranks. I want to, I want to say this right now, bringing someone in, this is a team that needs a rebuild the way that the revolution rebuilt at the end of the Steve Nichol era was through use. It was through the draft. It was through signing homegrowns. Uh, that's how you got your core of Fagundes, Rowe, uh, Soares, uh, Caldwell. I don't mind going the, the, the college rank um, at all. I'm not against that. Um, but you're all wrong. There is, there is one man, the former mayor of Hanover, the legend himself, Steve, Dolo, Chirundolo, I don't think he's working right now. He was an in guest invite team for the U.S. men's national team a couple of months ago in the winter camp. Call him up. Call him up right now. Ask him. Literally, this is his interview. Mr. Dolo, what do you need from us to get this team back into the playoffs? And then a couple of years after he gets you into the playoffs, you ask him, Steve, what do we need to get into the MLS Cup? And whatever he answers... You just start writing checks or figuring out ways how to make it happen. Um, and that would that would be my answer, Steve Trondolo. You know, I, I like it. I like yeah. it. And just uh, on the Trondolo note, I am very much on board that because uh, <laughs> many, many years ago, I actually won a, a Hanover 96 trivia contest and got a Steve Trondolo signed jersey that's in my closet right now. So I'm, right. A, I'm a Steve Trondolo fan. <laughs> In interesting answers, too. I, I don't think either of you mentioned this name, though. Another name that is being tossed out for the uh, current vacancies is Pat Noonan, who is um, the assistant yeah. coach in Philadelphia right now. Philadelphia obviously placing it, a lot of emphasis it, on it youth is. as well. 
yeah, I, I, that might be an interesting name because he he's worked with uh, you know Philadelphia has brought up their homegrown players. They're building up a system, uh, a, a youth system, and and it's really flourishing right now. So Pat Noonan being a part of that system and having that New England connection, that is an interesting name to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah. And it is amazing to me that that so many of these former like Steve Nickel era Revolution guys are assistant coaches, are getting coaching jobs, are always in the mix for these things. I, I agree with Sean when I say. I don't want to tap into that well this time, but I'm also not against if that's the direction that they go. If it is a Steve Ralston or it is a Pat Noonan, uh, I'm not against those things. Um, but I think there there is also a ceiling like, well, you get, you did that with Jay Heaps. Let's try and do something different. Yeah. No, absolutely. The only thing I'll say on Pat Noonan is my lasting memories of Pat Noonan from you know going to practices back in the day when, when he was there was is him absolutely going mental on rookies anytime they would make a mistake. And I'd hope he's calmed down since then. Um, but that was, that was my, my lasting impression of, of him in practices was just his uh, ability to completely freak out on young players. Anytime they would make a mistake or not play him a perfect pass. And maybe you agree with that coaching style, but to me, that's not necessarily the best coaching style. And again, that was a very long time ago. So maybe he is as a actual coach has, has changed his style a bit, but just wanted to throw that out there. I also do want to throw out two more names just because I was doing some research. I I had time to research this. I, I kind of sprung this on you guys uh, <laughs> right on the last second. Um, but there are two names that I don't think will be in consideration for the job, but I, I think are interesting. Um, one is the head coach of uh, New York Red Bulls to John Wolniak. I'm probably pronouncing that uh, incorrectly, mm-hmm. but he's also been uh, tied to a number of jobs or at least as a potential coaching uh, option for other jobs. And then another name, too, that I— Wasn't Wolniak an ex-rev for like two days? Sean, you would know that. If anyone knows that, it would be. I, I feel like he was on the rest yeah, for like all of like 30 I, I seconds. Think, I, think, I think so. He's getting a lot of credit with New York Red Bulls too. And a lot of people think he deserves to move up to a uh, senior team uh, and, and run an MLS team. So um, that would be an interesting connection. One more too that I, I think you should get an interview, although I don't think they would get the job at all. But Craig Stewart, who is the head coach of Providence College, has done a great job down there. He has a lot of ties to the region. He's been a he's a successful coach at the college ranks, although Providence College had a bit of a dip off, um, I think, in 2017. They're kind of making their way back in 2018. Um, but uh, he's a successful coach in Division Two and Division One. He has ties to the Boston Bolts. I think he coached their U17 or U18 team. So he has ties to um, kind of homegrown players in the area. So I, I think that's a guy that should get an interview. He's a local local guy. Um, he, he has a very successful record as a coach. Um, that's someone who I, I don't think I'd give him the job. I don't think he's ready for it, but I, I think de- deserves an interview just in terms of what he's accomplished. And moving on, uh, Phil Fleischer asks us, uh, how, sh- how much should we read into this new old lineup? Uh, how long will Andrew Farrell be at center back? Is Michael Mancien's injury real? Uh, and does all this chaos mean there's no transfers in the cards for the remainder of the season? Um, I don't think that M- Mancien's injury, I think, is real. I think we can all kind of write that one off as it is real. I don't think that they'd make up that he, he's been taking painkillers. I, I think he is out for injury. Uh, I don't know if you guys disagree with that. And I, I do think that Farrell is above De La May on the, the injury chart. So I think he'll be there until Mancien is, uh, is back. But um, how much should we read into this uh, new, new slash old lineup? Um, do we think that's what we're seeing going forward? I think we've already t- talked about this, but um, Jake, what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, again, Andrew Farrell is a fine emergency center back. Uh, he cannot be there long term. The fact that this still hasn't been addressed, the whole three center back, uh, three fullback issue. No, I don't count Gabriel Somi as a, a fullback uh, in, the, in the depth chart for reasons. Uh, 
Farrell's going to be at center back as long, for as long as everyone's healthy. That part I, I understand. Um, but he shouldn't be there at all. There should be another center back that, that should be able to step up. If Dalemay and Mancian aren't 100%, uh, I still think you need to have Farrell out wide. I think putting him in the middle occasionally back is fine, but uh, you know, fine is you know maybe once a month at most, and he's already been there like four or five times already this season. Uh, I don't like it. Um, every time I, I feel like Andrew Farrell plays at center back, it hampers his development at right back that much more. And this was someone who I thought was going to be in the mix for the U.S. national team for a long time to come. And and then 2015 happened, and he replaced AJ Soares at center back. So no, I don't I don't like seeing Farrell at center back. I, I don't like this situation at all. Um, but the defense is is still a mess. It doesn't matter what who's back there. Um, the unit has issues, and and Farrell at right back or Farrell at center back. Um, he needs to be in the back line. That's that is what the most important thing is. Yeah. So my my thought. I actually heard from somebody. I'm blanking on who it was. That Delamaya wasn't 100 percent late in the week. Um, and and my thought is if you know any if either Delamaya or Mancien is is ready and healthy to play center back as soon as that happens, uh, Andrew Farrell needs to move to right back. I just I just don't think. Uh, you know, despite us hearing that he played there in the past before he was with the Revolution, I just don't think he looks particularly comfortable there. Um, like I said, if there was you know one player that I thought come, came out of this game not looking that great, I thought it was Andrew Fowl. Um, there were just multiple times where he just got beat, and you know, thankfully Andy Baba had some great emergency defending moves to kind of cover for him. Um, but there's you know one time in particular early on where it was a one-on-one situation, and you know Farrell got completely blown past him. Um, so yeah, I think I think as soon as somebody is healthy, we see Farrell go back to right back yeah five starts for andrew farrell um i would say that's probably four too many um, i could see him being an emergency center back from time to time but um, yeah. flat out really uh not, not a good sign when he's playing there five games although i will say i do give andrew farrell credit for dropping a hard f-bomb on erickson when he shoved over that oh that's some good that's, ever that was great that was absolutely great apologies so. again to the farrell clan for the number of times we use that throughout the year because it's awesome <laughs> um, quickly though, uh, second part of that question: Does all this chaos mean there's no transfers in the cards for the remainder of the season? Uh, you know, we Jake, you you talked about you know this team is starting from square one in terms of scouting and current in terms of getting in a new coach and and, and finding the players to bring in. Um, uh, I don't know how how much we want to go in depth, but I can't picture them bringing in another designated player, especially a huge fourteen million dollar commitment. Um, Jake, I guess I'll start with you. Do you uh, am I on the right track there, or do you think they bring in someone big and make a big summer splash? I mean, if you are doing the big summer splash, it should be under the caveat of, look, you need to tell this guy you're playing for 2020 because you're probably not going to be able to salvage anything but maybe seventh place. Um, I think the, the the quicker you bring in some of these big new players, whether they're DP level, whether they're TAM level, whatever it is, um, at a bare minimum, and this is, should have been done at, at May and at, at the end of the other window, and this is the other reason why I want to fire Burns as well, um, the fact that, again, three center backs, three uh, fullbacks on the depth chart is inexcusable for a 30-man roster in MLS, uh, the, the depth on the back end needs to be addressed as soon as the summer window opens, whether that's via trades within the league, a minor signing here or there. Heck, go find a top USL guy and just let him you know, be your utility, you know, Darius Barnes-type guy off the bench uh, so that you know, Jaleel Alibaba doesn't have to do that all the time. Uh, there are there are little moves that need to be made regardless of the big transfer signings. Um, if the big transfer signing has to happen in January, that's that that's not the end of the world. 
Um, but this roster has issues, and there are things that should have been addressed at preseason, you know, at the end of the window a couple weeks ago, and 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 they haven't been. And I don't know why these same holes we've been talking about for years, we're still talking about them. Um, the back line is definitely one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I mean, I feel like we're beating a dead horse at this point with how many times we talk about you know, the lack of, of depth along the line and their failure year after year to bring in new defenders. But I don't know. It is uh, it is what it is. Um, on, on the topic, though, of the defense, uh, Phil also points out we still came close to tying a record for most goals conceded in five games. Uh, kudos to Matt Turner for saving the day on that one. So yeah, I was, all, all I needed was one more. <laughs> I, was, I was all in on Wando Watch. I was expecting far worse things to happen. Again, the simple notion of just, hey, Matt Turner, you're my guy. Get in the net. And, you know, 85 minutes of, of absolute spectacular from 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 Matt Turner. Uh, we need to you know praise that uh, performance from him far more than we have been. Turner train but, in full force. But, ahead, but worth noting that Frida will forever be in the history books for um, the, those uh, streaks of the most game, the most goals ever conceded in three games, three games uh, which and, was 15. And, and that was tied, the 2019 yeah. Revs. And then in four games, they tied Manchester. I mean, uh, Minnesota, Minnesota United yeah. with uh, 18 goals in four games. So if they, and they were one away from the five game title. So Bradfield did get his name in the record books for you know, most goals conceded over three and four games. Congrats. <laughs> not exactly what Brad Friel wants to be remembered for, but Brad Friel also the, the one positive thing we can say is that Brad Friel did give Matt Turner a shot at the starting job. So it was all downhill from there after literally after posting the lineup in Philadelphia at the season opener last year, all downhill for Brad Friel. Um, bringing it home. Uh, EP Griner asks us, uh, what should the rebellion do when they get snubbed at their request for a town hall with the crafts? Uh, and uh, the story here is that the rebellion handed a letter to, I, I guess it was Mike Burns or Brian Biello requesting a town hall to discuss the state of the revs. Um, Sean, what do you think they should do, if anything? I mean, I don't really know what they could do that would actually make it happen. The only thing that they really can do to you know, perhaps have an impact is if they could somehow get the entire fort on board to, you know, to not show up for a game or to walk out. Um, but I just don't know how feasible that is. And I don't know that even that would, would do anything. So it's, it's a, it's a tough question to to answer with any certainty that anything they could do would, would make a difference because, you know, you look at the revolution stadium um, and you know, the fort provides the atmosphere, but the, the vast, the vast majority of the tickets that are sold are or at least the tickets that are taking up seats are not the fort. Um, so I think it would hurt the team a lot if the fort wasn't there and, you know, it would go, wouldn't go unnoticed if they were, silent but i don't know that that would be enough to to get their attention yeah i mean you, you've got what one game on espn and maybe one game on fs1 the entire year so you're looking at uh when's the national tv friday july 12th against uh, at dc you don't even have a home national tv game to make some kind of a stand this year uh because that's the state of your team no one wants to see you on national television um I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything logically that, 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 you know, Sean's right. I don't think there's anything that they can do besides just, you know, hey, we're here. We're unhappy. We already know this. It, it should be well known at this point that the results for this team and the expectations for this team are not where they should be. Um, and whenever they start to change, uh, you can get most of the, the, the hardcore fan base. People who are on the hashtag, the people who are in the fort. Uh, you'll have those people back on board almost immediately. Again, it won't take much. Um, you just have to stop losing by five. Again, this is not a difficult transition uh, from being horrendous to being just average. But when you get back to average, you need to take the next step to getting back to you know above average 
good MLS Cup levels of of contention. Yep, and we'll we'll see if Lapper and Burns can turn this ship around. But um, in terms of what the fans can do and what the rebellion can do, I mean, I, I guess they can do a walkout. But I, I I mean, I'm all out of ideas. Attendance is down forty percent. I don't know if you want to do anything at the Chelsea friendly, cause I don't know, it is a pretty big event. You know, you're not going to have m- many more games like this. If you do spark a big protest and a friendly to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the time and place yeah, to do it. Maybe so. not the right place. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't have any other nationally televised games. Um, or at least I, I don't think you have for, I, I, I'd have to go check the schedule, but I'm pretty sure they don't a have single a single home game. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't think they have any at home. There, I think there are only one or two games. I was just looking at it. I, if, if it's more than that, I'd be shocked. It's really tough, but but I do think that with the attendance drop, and I, and I do think there is a lack of interest in this team this year with the um, with how how um, far the team has fallen. I mean, you see people on Twitter canceling season tickets almost every day. It seems like uh, I, I do think that this now is getting into the business side of things. Where in previous years the revolution, the attendance was going up and up and up, and now it's gone down, 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 down. Um, I, I do think the re- the revolution are at least in the process of taking action. Um, so, I mean, that's a positive thing, but what, else, what can the rebellion do? I have absolutely no idea. And Burns, I don't think is going anywhere either. So I, I'm curious to what they do do outside of making signs and making t-shirts and all that. They can be vocal and they can chant Burns out as much as they want. Uh, you know, it certainly came across on the broadcast yesterday, but that's, that's really it. I, I don't know what else they can do or else to go from there. So, um, that about wraps us up. Um, let's, I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts, Jake, any final thoughts, uh, anything on your mind that you want to get to? And, uh, why don't you give us your Twitter handle too, um, while we're going around the horn? No, again, I'm going to be, um, at the university of Hartford uh, on Tuesday, a rare media credential for me in person, uh, for the, uh, Hartford athletic U S Cosmo and New York Cosmos, um, U S open a second round game. Really looking forward to that. Uh, really looking forward to see you know who the Revs draw in in the third round. You know if, if the regular season is shot, you know let's let's go all in on a cup run. Let's let's you know a lot of people are saying you know play the kids. I have no problem if we have an entire starting lineup that's like you know Renix and Firmino and Buchanan and Bai and Dewan Jones. Get all those guys into a lineup. Make a legitimate run at the U.S. Open Cup. See if you can get into the quarters or the semis, and then really start looking at you know all right. Let's see if we can try and win this thing. Um, you know, take, take that competition seriously, you know, find some successes to build on. You had a good performance three, one in San Jose, find a way to build on that. And that's all you should be thinking about for, for this year. Find a way to, you know, build up on the roster that you have prepare for 2020. If you need to give it up, you're already in last place. There's the only thing you can do is remain in last place at this point. There is nowhere to go, but up, you cannot make any worse decisions than you already have. You're already at the bottom, unless we want to count the poor Colorado Rapids. Pour one out for them, too. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be that bad. So, uh, Sean, anything on your mind? Yeah, just uh, I think we hadn't mentioned it today. Is just a shout out to Justin Renix for making the US U20 World Cup yes. team um, with their first game coming up, uh, I think, Friday. May 24th at 2.30 p.m. I know I'm going to be trying to watch as much of the U20 World Cup as I can. Uh, but that's you know really exciting news for the Revolution to have a homegrown player that came up through their academy uh, playing for the U.S. U20 team. So that's, you know, in, in a lot of negative news around the Revolution this season, um, that's sure, surely a, a big positive that the Revolution have a homegrown player that's going to be playing in the, in the U20 World Cup for the U.S. Yep. And you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. 
Yeah, Jake, give your. Jake, I don't think you uh, gave your Twitter account. Jake, give no, your Twitter I didn't. Account. I apologize. Uh, at jcatneys43. Don't worry, you can find the spelling online. Uh, we'll be writing uh, that uh, Hartford game. I'll be writing actually for the Cup. Uh, .us with uh, Josh Halaka and the wonderful people who cover the Open Cup. You can also normally find me at theventmusket.com. Hopefully we'll have a column sometime Monday or Tuesday on this whole debacle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just want to wish uh, all the mothers out there listening to the podcast, Happy Mother's Day. Um, I won't wish my mother a Happy Mother's Day on the podcast because there's no way she listens to this. I've called her separately, though, so we're all good there. Uh, but uh, happy Mother's Day to uh, all the mothers <laughs> listening to the podcast. I also want to say uh, one quick thing, too, uh, that there is, you know, Six Days, One Podcast, the biggest podcast, I would say, uh, that cover the revolution. Um, they, they did something that I, I'm really ashamed and embarrassed about. They made a reference to the Bryant University basketball team before we did on this <laughs> podcast. And that is particularly shameful because the Bryant University men's basketball team has approximately five fans and Sean and I are two of them. So I am really, really <laughs> upset that we got beat to the punch to reference the Bryant University men's basketball team before Six States One podcast. I am so upset about that. So that, uh, as as someone who follows a mediocre small <laughs> college in uh, Division One, known as the Ryder Bronx of Lawrenceville, New Jersey, I concur. That's a bad job by you guys. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, I guess we just haven't found a way to work it in, and they beat us to. I, uh, we'll make up for it someday. Uh, when the revs are getting in last, maybe like towards the end of the season, we'll do a Bryant University pre- season preview episode just to kind of stick it to them. But I, I was just waiting for some team to go on like a twenty-game losing streak and then end it against the revs because then we could have made a good reference. <laughs> I, I would be, I would be all for an entire uh, whatever, whatever. They're, are they in the NEC? What conference are they in? NEC, you got it NEC, right. We can do an entire NEC preview for basketball. I'd be all for that. I, I, you know, I hope you're not being sarcastic because I would love to do. No, that. no, 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 no. I'm Our dead. listeners yeah, would again. hate it, but again, yeah. oh, I'm sure everyone would. Wait a minute, hold on. They're already listening to us. They, it, it's already, it's no problem. But uh, yeah, we can do, we can do like the NEC, um, not the Northeast Ten. That's uh, Southern Connecticut. What's no, the other little conference? Northeast Conference. We will give just our prediction Northeast, to which team will Northeast win the Northeast Conference, conference and lose in the play-in game. Metro that Atlantic is... Conference, all Ivy, whatever, whatever we want. We can, we can work it in. Oh, well, don't, uh, don't give me uh, Ivy too. I can double down uh, dating the pen grad. So uh, you can follow us on Twitter at revolution recap and also like the revolution recap page on Facebook. Please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening. Uh, the revs have another two week match this week. Uh, first on Wednesday with their friendly against Europa league finalist, Chelsea. Uh, right. <laughs> then they're traveling uh, to Canada to face the Montreal impact on Saturday. Uh, but however, our podcast, we have our first bye week of the season. Uh, we, will not be recording next week uh so uh, we will be back in two weeks uh to recap the dc united game uh so hopefully i know i know it's a bit of a crazy week there needs to be no week no no big news over this next week because we're not going to be around i'm sure with a new manager and the team in total chaos there's going to be absolutely no news that we need to cover so should be a pretty tame week uh but we will be back in uh, two weeks to discuss everything uh in, in the dc united game but until then thank you everyone for listening and go revs